Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Susan Hill, calling from England. The Woman in Black, a play by Stephen Malatrat and directed by Robin Herford, is playing in San Francisco at ACT's Strand Theater through January 16th, and for more information, you can go to act-sf.org in New York through March 13th and in an open-ended run in the West End in London. Susan Hill has written over 30 novels, most of them standalones in the gothic ghost story genre, and 11 crime novels featuring her detective Simon Sorreller, the most recent being The Benefit of Hindsight, published in 2020, with A Change of Circumstance to be published in March 2022. She's also written six collections of short stories, an autobiography among nine nonfiction works, five plays, and 13 children's books. She became a dame of the British Empire in 2020. I want to start by talking a little bit about the play The Woman in Black. This play has been around since 1987, is this the first time it's gone on an American tour that you know of? It's been on in various places in America. Sometimes does really, really well. It's doing very, very well in New York City at the moment. Other times, people don't really get it. We've been on in Seattle, which loved it. It goes around. Sometimes we have amateurs doing two or three nights. And sometimes we have professional companies doing two or three months. It always seems to change according to where it is. That sounds strange, but it is to do with where it is, the audience, what it's like outside. People have different reactions, different people from different places. We're often on in places in Europe. It does very well in hot countries, and it does very well in Latin countries, Italy, Spain, and it doesn't do very well in northern countries like Germany. Scandinavia. They don't understand it. Now you tell me why that is. I don't know. You wrote the book. It was turned into a play in 1987. Did you have any dealings with that initial production? It's the second longest running play in the West End after The Mousetrap, and it's still running. I had nothing at all to do with it. Nothing at all. What happened was I had a letter one day in the, I think it must have been 1986, from Stephen Malatrat, who was then writer-in-residence at the small theatre in Scarborough, which is where I was born and brought up. So anything that came from there, I was very open to. And he said, I read your book on holiday in Greece, just picked it up at the airport, and I had an idea how it would work on stage. Would you think of allowing me to have a go at adapting it for theatre? And I thought, this man is crazy. How could it possibly go on stage? It would make a great film, but I just couldn't see it. So I replied saying, yeah, have a go. Why not? I heard nothing then for over a year. And one day a script landed on my desk. I was just going to London 
and gave it to my husband and said, can you have a look at that? Just so that I can write back kindly. And when I got home, he said, you better read this. It's brilliant. I read it and I thought he'd had this one idea, this genius idea of how to change the book into a stage play using everything that the theatre is about, the imagination really, and about the space of it and the way it can deal with time and what you see and what you don't see in this small area. I just thought it was very, very clever. And I said, yeah, it's great, go ahead. So they went ahead. It was in this tiny studio theatre in Scarborough. I think it seated probably 60 people, just like being in a big room. And I went up for the first night, and it worked terrifyingly. And we thought, this is good. Had nice local reviews. This will do well in Scarborough for six weeks. And it did. And then a few months later, Peter Wilson, who has produced it ever since, wrote to me and said, I've been to see the show in Scarborough, I want to bring it to London. And of course I said yes, but we waited quite a long time for it to find the right home in London. It went to theatre after theatre, and each theatre was wrong. It didn't work. And Peter kept his faith in it, which is something I've always been amazed by and very grateful for. He kept his faith in it, and he said, we've just got to find the right place, the right theatre. And we found it eventually, in the Fortune Theatre, where it's now been for, if you don't count, two years out because of COVID. We've been 32 years. It's the perfect space for it, and it just worked. It just clicked with everybody and everything. I was a bit cynical. I didn't think it was going to last. My agent said, well, six months would be good. So what do you say? (laughs) Here it still is. It just is something that uses every device of theatre. And that's what Stephen was so clever at, as I could never have done. It isn't that the book changes. It's Strangely, if you read the book alongside the play script, there are additions, but he's used an awful lot of my prose and dialogue. He hasn't changed it, and yet he's changed it totally. It works. You said before that some places and audiences don't get it. And what do you mean by don't get it? I think there are some people who don't have an emotional response to theatre, and they're not spooked. They don't give themselves over to it easily. I mean, I don't want to make too much of national characteristics, but there is no doubt that, for example, in Germany and, and parts of Scandinavia and Austria, They're quite rational people, and they just don't understand being frightened in the theatre. They understand being frightened, I'm sure, but it it just doesn't click with them. Whereas it has been running for 25 years in Mexico City, can you believe? They absolutely love it. Why Mexico City? I think it's to do with some cultures having a tradition of the supernatural in theatre, in art, in entertainment, in religion. It's wrapped into their lives. So it's always done well. It's not been very often, but it's always done well when it's gone to India because they have that tradition. Um, A lot of the Latin countries, I mean, Mexico, but also France, Spain, Italy, still have that lurking in their psyche. And I think it's to do with that. America is such a mixed bag of a country that, I think it is a question of 
Some people will respond, some won't. There isn't one national characteristic with you. What makes a theater acceptable for this particular show that you had a search for the right theater? Why didn't it work? I think an enormous theater with several levels. It just doesn't work. It's too big. It isn't intimate enough to be frightening. If you get an audience of a thousand people in a huge theater, it drowns it. And people don't get that feeling of being very close to something very frightening not just physically close, but somehow emotionally close, verbally close, everything. I think that some theatres didn't work in London because, you know, simple stuff like the gangways in the wrong place. I don't know, atmosphere of a theatre. Some theatres have no atmosphere. If they're too new, they don't have much. We've been on tour in England and... There are newish theatres, by that I mean maybe 40 years old, as against 200 years old or 100 years old, and they're just too modern. It, it, it just doesn't work. It's very strange. It brings with it its own atmosphere. It's got a click with the place, but it's clicked in some very strange places. We, we had a small tour of the outback of Australia some years ago now, 20 years, 30 years, and it played in very hot parts of Australia, in funny little towns with a theatre seating maybe 50, 60 people in the heat, and it worked wonderfully well. You, you just don't know. The right home, undoubtedly, in London is the Fortune Theatre because it's just the right size, the right age, everything about it is right. The Strand is a fairly intimate theatre. Even though the building is old, the theatre itself is pretty new. So I can't give you an answer except that there was a ghost story that played there a few years ago, and it went off very well. So let's keep our fingers crossed. If the, what you might call the auditorium arrangement of seating, is fairly traditional, then it will work. It's if you go to a new, new theatre which has fitted itself out a little bit like stainless steel and, you know, modern seating, no curtaining, no softening, and there are a few like that, it doesn't work. It doesn't sound as though your theatre is going to be like that. I think one of the things that will be good is if you have really good San Francisco fog. The Woman in Black is a ghost story, an English ghost story. What is an English ghost story, and how does that differ from, say, a German ghost story or a Mexican one? Well, I don't think there are very many German ones. Mexican, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think it's because it's very traditional. It's a traditional English form, which only comes from the sort of 18th century. It doesn't go back all that far, the traditional ghost story, unless you count Shakespeare and Hamlet and so on. But it's to do with the different atmosphere in England, depending on where you are. The weather is always different and changing. It's to do with the landscape. The fact that where it's set on this marsh with mists rolling over is, is quintessentially English. I mean, I'm sure it happens in other places, in other parts of the world that it's like that, but it, it really is very English. I think the tradition of ghost stories that go back to M.R. James and Henry James, um, although I know he's American, but there's something about using the landscape and the weather and all the traditional accoutrements of the ghost story, of course, like graveyards and it just fits with the English 
past writing. There isn't so much of it now, although people have been picking up the ghost story. I think I may have had something to do with giving it a bit of a revival, which I'm really pleased about, because when I wrote it, it was partly because I knew lots of short ghost stories. But apart from Dickens' A Christmas Carol and The Turn of the Screw, neither of which are very long, that there wasn't a full-length ghost story, and I really wanted to fill the gap, make sure to see whether it could be done now. It was a bit of a challenge to myself. You couldn't make it too long. You could not, I think, successfully make a ghost story the length of War and Peace. It would stretch the rope very thin. I was thinking as you were talking of Thomas Hardy or even Bronte's Wuthering Heights, in which the atmosphere is almost more important than the characters. Well, I've been heavily influenced by both of those. Hardy, I loved from being a schoolgirl doing Thomas Hardy at A-level, and I, I love the way his landscape is a character, his weather is a character. I've been rereading The Return of the Native fairly recently, and I think I learned so much from Hardy and was influenced greatly by him. And, of course, I come from Yorkshire and was born not too far from Wuthering Heights. So that, again, it gets in your blood. And you're absolutely right to pull out those two writers, which had a heavy influence on me, those two and Dickens. When I was young, and, you know, your formative influences are, are all from being young. I think Graham Greene said, everything you read and know about until the time you're 12 is what feeds you for the rest of your life as a writer. I think that's what influenced me, without my quite realizing it at the time. You did spend a lot of time in a convent school when you were growing up, and that's where you became interested in literature and theater. But was the convent school itself like any of the creepy old mansions with fog swirling around? Not at all, no. Although it was an older building, I suppose it was Victorian. No, it had nothing of that atmosphere at all. I was very happy there. I loved it. And there were no shades of spooks around in the least. I can't attribute anything to that. How did you get interested in literature and theater? I mean, for me, I began reading at the age of six and never stopped. Well, exactly the same with me. I think I was four, but I've never stopped reading. And I was an only child, and I think only children can have great recourse to books instead of siblings. I loved reading. My, both of my parents were readers. And of course, then we didn't have television. We didn't have computers. We didn't have the sort of games on machinery. Our games were either outside or board games. I think you're influenced very much. If both your parents spend the evening reading, then you do too. Theatre came because quite early, Scarborough had a theatre which had a repertory system and they brought in a new play every two weeks. And my mother was an annual member. My father didn't care for it, so he didn't come. But she took me from the age of perhaps 10 or 11, and I saw all sorts of things. Nothing unsuitable, but I just loved it. I loved the visit to the theatre and going from outside the cold wind and the sound of the sea, going into this warm, beautifully lit space that had a particularly special smell, and all theatres still do have that smell. You know, it was just a magic casement into another world, and I'd always loved it, and I still do, although... I like it less, I think, now, because I think there's far less good theatre. People are so earnest now, and they want to preach to you through the theatre. I don't want to be 
preached to. I don't want to get my politics and my economics through a play. I'll get those elsewhere. And I think it's all perhaps lost sight. I suppose there are different horses for courses. There are different ways of utilising theatre. But I love musicals. I love theatre that uses all the effects to take you into other worlds. Just that, really. I think as a child, I, I fell for it then. Getting a little afield, and I want to come back to that, when you're writing your gothics, your ghost stories, or even your crime novels with Simon Sorreller, does politics come into it? Not as in party politics, no, because those are so transitory. You know, everything's different every year or five years or whatever. I think a political attitude, because everybody has a political attitude, unless they're very, very stupid or detached from life. I think, yeah, those come into the crime novels deliberately, but I do it with a light hand. But if you're writing about contemporary families now, inevitably people talk about those things. I don't want to bore everybody with it. And there are some things I deliberately ignore. I decided that absolutely was not going to mention the pandemic in the crime novels because it's going to date so quickly, at least we hope it will. And I didn't want to write about what everybody had been doing during lockdown and so on because we've had enough of that. So I've deliberately pretended that never happened. Nobody mentions it and they're never going to. But politics, people will talk about certain things and they'll take sides not in a preachy way, and it's done, I say, with a light touch because they're not that sort of book. Do you bring up, just in casual conversation in these books, Brexit, for instance? No, I haven't mentioned Brexit either. Everybody gets so much of whatever it is that's obsessing at the moment, whether it's COVID, whether it's Brexit, unless you're going to write a serious book about that subject, which is an entirely different thing, I don't think people want to read it in fiction. Brexit is over, it's done, we're in it. COVID is, we're in the middle of still, but who knows. But I, I suspect that lockdown is probably done, unless there is a really major change. You don't want to know about it, do you, really? I don't, not anymore. Let's go back a little to your career. You were reading a lot. You were interested in theater. What brought you to writing? And your first novel, The Enclosure, was actually published in your first year in university, which means you began very early and learned the tricks of the trade very, very early. I started writing when I was about four or five. If I couldn't find the story I wanted to read, I, I wrote it for, for myself. I think that's another thing that only children often do. You know, they have imaginative games, imaginary friends. And I wrote stories. And when I was about nine, I wrote a play that my class performed. I don't think it was any good, but I did. I just never didn't write. You know, I, I read and wrote as one thing. So I just went on doing it. Then I was at school and doing exams. But I was always going to do literature in some form. So I aimed to go to university to read English and did. While I was doing A-levels, I must have maybe had not enough to do. So I wrote a novel. And I think back now, I can't believe this happened, <laughs> that I was doing, uh, you know, three or four serious exams, which required enormous amounts of reading and reading criticism and writing essays and so on. And yet I still had enough time to write a book in the evenings. God knows. These early novels were primarily gothics, ghost stories? 
No, they were terrible. I mean, I hope to God nobody ever rereads the first two. No, they were about sort of life in a city and, you know, people's marriages about which I really knew nothing and life in the theatre, which I knew a little bit about. I sort of set them in theatrical backgrounds. But they're, they're apprentice work. Very few people start off with a bang and do it, get it right first time. And I didn't. I think I got it right about the fifth time. Well, that's fine. I mean, I'm still pretty young. How did that first novel wind up getting published? And which is the novel that you see as your graduation from apprenticeship novel? Oh, that's definitely one called Gentlemen and Ladies, which came out, I think, in 1968, 69, something like that. I'm not very clear on the date, but that would be about right. I just learned how to write. I think the only way you learn how to write, well, you learn it in two ways. You learn it by reading people who write better than you ever will, and you learn it by doing it. And I'm not a great fan of creative writing courses. I think they're very helpful if you're studying literature and studying criticism. I don't think they turn you into a a great creative writer, though I know one or two people have proved me wrong. But in general, I think you learn by not just reading Thomas Hardy and Dickens and, you know, Anne Tyler and Alice Munro and whoever it is, not just by reading them, but by reading them with a view to learning how they do it. How do they do this thing? And you, you absorb it. I, I don't know whether other writers do a lot of this. I suspect they used to. Whether writers still do, I don't know. And I'm always quite shocked when I speak to somebody who is young and says, oh, I want to be a writer. It's my greatest ambition. And I say, okay, what do you read? Oh, well, I don't really read very much. You were born in 1942. And that means that your early years that you remember were the early years post-war. Do you think some of the bleakness of your novels, which you have said, I don't know why I write them, do you think that might have had something to do with the bleakness of England in the post-war years? It could have done. I do actually remember I was three when the war ended, and I do remember just little things about that last year of the war and then the early post-war years. It could be, it was a pretty bleak place, but I was not in a bleak place where I lived. I mean, Scarborough was still beautiful, it still is, and the war seemed far away there. I don't know, who knows what you're influenced by. I do know that people think now with COVID, it's changed life for a lot of children actually who become very frightened of things and the difficulties of this and that and I remember in the late 40s 50s everything was rationed children got plenty to eat because they got special rations everything was pretty gray there were still lots of bombed buildings around they were not cleared until right the end of the 40s early 50s probably later life didn't have a lot of jokes and beauty. That's why I think people went to the glamorous cinema of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers because they wanted to see that amazing pre-war world of glamour and beauty and elegance and delight and richness. When I was quite young, I suppose four or five, there was a word that I thought was one word, 
which was before the war, because my parents would talk about, oh, we had those before the war. You, you always got these wonderful shops full of beautiful things at Christmas before the war. And I really did think it was one word. And then gradually, you know, we merged into the 60s and everything changed and color and fashion and everything new and different. And that was, I suppose, my era of growing up. But who knows what influences you and affects you as a young child. I do know I've written an awful lot about that Scarborough background and people who lived as adults when I was a child there, that sort of person. You use what you've been given. When I was a teenager in the 60s, the place to talk about was England because it was mod swinging London. There were the Stones and the Beatles. And the world shifted and suddenly the center later became San Francisco. But at that point, it was London and it was Liverpool. You were there. You were a teenager and in your early 20s. What was that like for you? Well, strangely, the Beatles really hit the world. I was just a little bit too old. I wasn't a teenager during the Beatles era. I certainly knew their music and still do, but I was in my early 20s. But in the 60s, I was in London, first of all, as an undergraduate, and then back in Coventry, which is where we'd moved to, which is a city in the middle of England. It's very hard to, to know how much you were influenced, but certainly everything that was going on in terms of you know, the famous people and the fashion and the music and whatever was, was my growing up. It's interesting that you should say, though, that you were all thinking of England because my younger daughter came to Berkeley for a year at university. And at the end of that, she came and had a job in San Francisco for six months. And her sister, who's the elder one, came over to visit her. And one day she rang me up and said, Mama, I just want to tell you something. Guess where I am? Remembering the time difference, I, I was probably going to bed or something. And I said, no, I don't know. Where are you? And she said, I'm in Haight-Ashbury. That was the legend, you know, the flower power legend. For me, of course, that was what happened when we were that age. If I'd been able to go to America, that's where I would have been. You forget these things become crystallized, don't they? But at the time, of course, they're not crystallized. They're fluid and living. London was a rather post-war place. When I went up to university in 1960, and by the time I left at the end of 1963, it was London of Mary Quant and the Beatles and all of that. It changed in those three or four years, and then that just took, it, took over. It was exciting, I think. You just thought, at last, life is happening. During those years, you were still writing your gothics and your ghost stories, right? I didn't write ghost stories till much later. What prompted you to write the ghost stories then? Oh, I'd always read them. I'd loved reading them. And it occurred to me that most ghost stories were short. There were a few longer ones. I mean, The Turn of the Screw and Christmas Carol. But there weren't very many full-length ghost stories. And I wondered why, because I was found that when they were very short, they weren't quite satisfying enough. So I decided, why not give it a go? Let's try and revive Let's see if it can be done. Is there a good reason why there aren't many long ghost stories? Maybe there is a good reason why people haven't done it. So the only way to find out is to try it. So I tried it. I made a list of what I thought ought to be in it. And the most important thing of all was, obviously, there's got to be a ghost. But the most important thing was that ghost had to have a reason 
to haunt in fiction. You know those true life ghost stories that you see books of? And all those true life ghost stories are really so boring because they have no reason to be there. I mean, the lady floats up a staircase and then she floats down again and then she disappears and then she does it again. So what? And I didn't want to write that kind of book. I wanted a, a story about a ghost who had to come back in order to, to what? Now, it could be to impart a secret that only they knew, or it could be, as I decided it was going to be in The Woman in Black, to get revenge for something that had happened. And that's a very serious reason. It becomes a very serious reason. And the haunting is a restlessness to try and change what happened. Otherwise, there is no point to a ghost. And in fiction, there has to be a point. At a certain point, I guess, eventually you would run out of reasons or atmosphere. I mean, there are so many of these that you've written over the years. At some point, I guess you kind of went, you know, time for a change. Is that why the crime novels came in? I think so. Although at the beginning, they slightly interwove with one another. You're right. And I wanted to look at my own times. And I also wanted to something that is endlessly interesting. Murder is not very interesting in itself. There are only so many ways to kill somebody. It's not even who done it, because eventually, mostly, who done it will be discovered. That sort of puzzle, a bit like Rubik's Cube, ultimately is not very interesting. Eight people locked in a room in a snowstorm, then they found a body, which of the others did it? You know, it's a puzzle, like Cluedo, it's a fun game. I wanted to be serious, and the reason that I started writing those crime novels because I've never really fully understood the why. Now, discounting people who go mad, and there is a sort of murder committed when people are literally out of their minds, which again is not so interesting. There are all sorts of reasons why people kill, and some are rather mundane. You know, a man comes home and finds his wife in bed with a, another man, so he hits the other man over the head with a lampshade and kills him. I mean, that's not very interesting. It's the pathological killer, the serial killer. What is it? Why, why, why? Maybe there's no answer. Maybe in the end you'll never get the answer. But it is endlessly interesting to try and work out what goes on in that person's head and why. And I think that's where I started writing them. And obviously I wanted to write them about now, our times. I deliberately keep it a little vague as to what year it is. I think that was the main reason. And then they grew. I don't think I intended the family of uh, my detective you know, his sister, his brother-in-law, and so on. I didn't intend that family to grow quite so many branches. But I've enjoyed looking at them as well, and I've always been interested in medicine and the way doctors operate and the, the whole system of medicine. So I wanted a doctor in there, so we have the detective sister. So it's grown as it's gone along, that series. One question that often comes up with authors of mystery series featuring a single detective is how do you keep the characters fresh and it sounds like with Simon Sorrailer, you do it by focusing on his family. Yes, that is true. And also I was wanted to make sure that he grew and changed as people do as they grow up. You know, when it starts, he's a relatively young 
detective and he's getting older now. He's not old, but of course he climbs the career ladder and his personal life changes and changes back again. And I think there's no good having a static central character through various, I mean, how many? I've done 11. You can't have him being the same. I've been reading quite a lot of Marjorie Allingham, who is a classic 1920s, 1930s English crime writer. And she's very, very good. She's much better than many of them. And she has a central character who stays from, I suppose, there must be 15 or so books. And it goes through 20, 30 years. And he changes. And he grows up and he marries and he has a child. And he goes on being a detective. He's not an official detective. He's not a policeman. And he's rather an idiot although a clever one to start with, and then he becomes a mature man as various things happen to him. I've realised that this is what makes them work so well, apart from each story. And that's something I'm keen to do. So I'm vaguely thinking about the next one now, and I'm actually thinking, now you've got to have grown up a bit more now, and certain things are going to change. In one of them, he had a terrible accident and lost an arm, and so he has a prosthetic arm. And that, I think, affects people, not physically. I mean, those things are so brilliant now that they soon, people soon grow, grow into them. But it's affected him psychologically more than maybe you'd imagine. And I wanted to look at that again. Because I think any part of you, other than a tooth or something, any part of you that's suddenly not your own anymore, and you've had this long series of operations, and you've suddenly got this part of you which works, and yet it isn't you anymore. And I think the psychological ramifications of that could be quite strong. The first novel of Simon Sorrell, or how did you get his name, and was that going to be a standalone, and then you decided to go back to him? I was going to do three. It was commissioned as three. I mean, they're not, not a trilogy in the sense that they follow on from one another, because they are separate stories, although books two and three slightly linked together. His name, I don't know. It, it just came into my head. I mean, I know that sounds stupid. I sometimes regret it and wish I'd call him Smith because so many people say, I don't know how to say it. But you can look at it. You don't have to say it. You can, you, you can recognize it on the page. And it's distinctive. It, it, if he just had a name like Simon Smith, nobody would remember him. But I just went on because he interested me. And then the whole world, the place in which he lives, and then his family and so on, it just goes on interesting me. There's never a shortage of crime stories, although there are only so many crimes. But everything hinges on something that may just have happened, you know, last week, last month. Suddenly, something new. The most recent is a change of circumstance. Is that right? Yes. What is Simon Sorreller looking for in a change of circumstance? Well, a change of circumstance. I don't know what the equivalent would be in America, but in, in the United Kingdom, we've had something in the last, I suppose, 15, 20 years becoming much, much more significant in the last 10. Something they call county lines. And it's about big drug barons in big cities have a chain of command. And down towards the end of that chain of command, so you get, you know, the big boss who nobody ever sees and nobody knows who he is, and he's probably somebody nobody would dream was the big drug baron. A little bit lower down the chain of command, you get guys in the cities who want to infiltrate places like Lafferton, smaller places, rural towns, and get drugs 
into those places. And the way they do it is to groom young kids to be mules, drug runners. They're the ones who they bribe, you know, with sort of smartphones and things. And then they bribe them by frightening them. And they get these kids to really to carry the drugs between people. There's a long chain of people. So this is how the drugs get into these small towns and cities where they wouldn't probably have, well, they'd have had drugs, but they wouldn't have been the problem they are now. It's a terrible scourge because they're using kids of, you know, maybe 10, 12, you know, you bribe them, you you groom them, and before they know where they are, they're getting these envelopes and taking them to drop them in doorways and put them through letterboxes. And, of course, they're completely entrapped then. And as they get older, then they're introduced to the drugs, and there we go. And it's, it's this, and Simon has always been somebody who said, oh, there's too much made trouble made out of drugs. It's not that big a problem here. And, oh, we waste all this time and money on standing around waiting for people to have a spliff and it's just a waste of our time and then suddenly he realizes that this is a whole different picture small kids school kids are being groomed to do this job and it's ruining their lives from the age of 10 or 12 and he has two particular children whose lives well one manages to not have his complete life ruined and the other one doesn't and it's something that changes his mind about the whole drug thing and he realizes what a problem it's become, not just in London and big cities, but actually on his own doorstep. That's the crime theme. You're not using Brexit or COVID, but you are focusing on societal issues. Yeah, and I think yeah. something like that affects society in so many ways. It affects families, it affects the education, it affects schools, it affects everything. You know, it ruins young lives. And we have a, a young man who's entire life has been ruined because he's become a junkie you know it kills him and the effect on his family is devastating a crime like that or crimes like that changes communities changes society until they get on top of it if they ever will i'm dread anything in this country becoming as bad as the communities in the wire hope it never becomes like that but who knows I'd like to switch gears and ask a couple of questions about films and plays. You have written five plays, and several of your books have become films. Going back to The Woman in Black, there have been three movies made, one of which had Daniel Radcliffe. What did you think of that film? I loved it. I think there were things wrong with it, but when people say, oh, it, it, it changed the book, it spoiled the book, well, that the answer is, of course, it didn't. The book's still there. It hasn't done anything to the book. Somebody else took it over and transformed it into a different medium. I loved the film. I thought it looked beautiful. Um, they set it wonderfully. The, the photography was great. He's a very good director. I loved Daniel. People think he was too young. I don't. I thought all of it was right. There were just some things that I didn't think worked, and I thought the ending was a disaster. They sort of cobbled the ending together at the last minute, I don't think they had time to think it through properly, and it didn't work. Other than that, yeah, I mean, I really like that one. I think the best film is one that it's now available, I think, on DVD and streaming, maybe, was 1989 was a television adaptation, and that was, I think, is the best one, but it's not being shown on the big screen. Now, I'm all for people taking my work and doing something else with it. It's a great compliment, and it doesn't change the book. (laughs) 
When I was looking at IMDb, I saw something called The Woman in Black 2. Oh, God, yeah. Well, I had an idea when she kind of comes back at another time in another period. And I then decided, no, I, I don't like this and I don't want to write this and, you know, forgot about it. But I'd already talked to somebody about it who said, can we take the idea over and look at it for a film? I said, yeah, OK, do what you want. And they had to pay me, obviously, but apart from that, I had nothing to do with it. Now, it's fine. The film wasn't very good, but it wasn't very bad either. It was OK. The real disaster came when somebody was asked to write the novel of the film, which is really, truly dreadful. But, you know, I had nothing to do with it. It doesn't affect me. I just got a bit of money out of it. It's come and gone. The film is not the end of the world, but for God's sake, don't read the book. There's also I'm the King of the Castle. That was a film, too. Yes, a French film. Very strange, because the French are a bit arty about their films. You know, they, they make everything all rather um, maestriani. It was very strange. I don't know whether I liked it or not. It was a way of doing it that didn't really bear much relation to the book. But I think it worked on its own terms. It's long gone. I mean, people keep trying to make a new film of that. I wish they would, but it never gets made. Yeah, you know, films, films, films. What about the Surreller TV series? Different people keep writing screenplays and it keeps not being made and it's about 16 years now, I suppose. I mean, you know, I just keep taking the odd few, few grand as an option and it'll never get done, but I don't really care about that. The only thing is, I just really hope that if it ever does get made, it's made well. And, and I do want that to be true to the book. And I fear that television wouldn't. So... I'm quite happy for it not to be made, just as long as people go on optioning it. I also noticed you have six collections of short stories. When you're writing a short story, do you not know whether it'll be a novel? What tells you what's going to be a novel and what's going to be a short story? I don't know a lot about things ahead, but that is something I always do know. I always know when I start that this is going to be a short story. It's completely different. I'm not a poet and I couldn't write poetry, but I imagine it's a bit like knowing that something is going to be a poem, which is an entirely different way of writing. I don't write many short stories and I haven't written any for a long time. I probably won't just because they don't, the ideas don't come, but it is quite different. When you get them right, they're very satisfying, but readers don't like them much. They don't sell very well and people don't really quite get what goes into them, I don't think. I think a reader has to work at a short story. You know, you have to dig behind. And a lot of people don't like doing that. They, they want it at length and so that it's all there in front of them, depending on the book. You're a dame of the British Empire now. Is that kind of equivalent to being Sir Susan Hill? Yes, it's exactly the same. My husband is a sir, so I'm kind of both. But <laughs> yeah, it's exactly the same. It's the female equivalent. I don't like being called dame. It's such a stupid word. There's a whole hierarchy of those things. So I'd already got a CBE, which is commander of the British Empire, but you don't get called anything. So the next stage up is, um, is being a dame, but it never occurred to me that they'd ask me. It's an honor, and why not? That got you meeting the Queen, right? No, 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 no. The Queen isn't doing anymore. Remember, it was announced just at the beginning of covid and they weren't doing any investitures for 18 months because you couldn't. The Queen is, doesn't do any now. She's, she's too old and, you know, they have to stand for two hours giving people 
their medals and knighthoods and things. No, he's the Prince of Wales, who I know anyway, who's a friend, so that was nice. But it would have been historic to have had the Queen, but you get a wonderful document, like a scroll, which tells you that you are now a dame of the British Empire. And that was signed by the Queen and also signed by Prince Philip. So that's quite historic to have. It's, you know, that's quite important. I shall pass that on to my children. Susan Hill, you have said you don't believe in ghosts, but you do believe in evil. Is that correct? Yes. I don't think I believe in ghosts, although I was talking to a quantum physicist who said, oh, ghosts, they exist. It's all to do with time and time being on a spiral and things coming back. And, you know, apparently physicists, which is an area I just don't understand, they now believe in, you know, everything, everything's still there and going round again. So maybe they do. But no, I don't believe in the traditional ghost. And I don't think I've ever seen one. If I did, I don't suppose I'd know. But evil is something quite different. I mean, yeah, I believe in good and evil. And I believe that there is this constant battle and it's portrayed wonderfully well in all those myths and legends and stories about battle between good and evil. Every single culture has that conflict because it's in front of us, isn't it? We're just talking about Simon Sorella and the drug barons. You know, it's there. Yeah, I really do. And I think there is a force for evil which does take over some people. Why? I don't know. I don't believe in the devil, but there is some sort of evil force. I'm quite certain. And I believe in the redemption of it as well. I mean, I believe in the Christian, whether it's a story or whatever. I mean, I think it's a good way of putting it as any. But I think ghosts are something different. I don't think a ghost, you see, is necessarily evil. I don't think I've ever known or read about comic ghosts. But I'm sure that, oh, I think Laurel and Hardy did one, actually. I think that's right. The woman in black is evil because she keeps on trying to wreak revenge. And, you know, that sentence in the Bible revenge is mine, said the Lord, I will repay. And uh, I mean, that's about it. We shouldn't do it. We shouldn't keep on trying to be vengeful as she is. So that's evil. Maybe there are benign ghosts. Are you working on a new Simon Sorreller novel now? No, not at the moment. I've had a bit of a break. I finished one during lockdown earlier on in the year. I'm just having a, a break. I'm just reading at the moment. I've just been reading Truman Capote in Cold Blood, which strangely I've never read, although it's been around for many years. That's a book about evil, if you like. You've been listening to an interview with Susan Hill, whose most recent novel is The Benefit of Hindsight. A Change of Circumstance comes out in 2022. The play based on her novel, The Woman in Black, is now at ACT Strand Theatre through January 16th. For more information, you can go to act-sf.org. Information on the New York and London productions can be found by going to thewomaninblack.com. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>